When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, September 26th. The tours have made their official return to Asia. It's a bit of a weird schedule this week. We actually have a couple of finals to discuss on today's show. Alex Zverev surviving quite the test against Roman Safulin in the Zhuhai finals. Zverev ultimately able to capture the title in three sets. Want to break that match down for all of you listeners today. I also, of course, want to discuss Karen Hatchinov's long-awaited return to the winner's circle. He wins a straight set match over Yoshihito Nishioka. Very competitive first set. Ultimately, Hatchinov able to pull away in the second. We'll discuss how and why he was able to do that here on today's show. After that, want to preview the week ahead. We've got some fascinating draws in Beijing, Tokyo on the men's and women's sides, respectively. Top players in the world competing in each of those events. We've got pretty fun undercards as well in Be- uh, excuse me in Astana in Ningbao as well. Want to get into the week ahead? Preview each of the draws. Offer my predictions for all of you listeners today. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in day out is because of the support we get from all of you listeners. And if you're looking for what else is happening across levels in the tennis world right now, I'd point all of you over to our great shot podcast feed on Monday. Damian Coos broke down all the challenger action today. Myself, John Parsons. We break down the first busy weekend of the college tennis season. There were a lot of fun results. I like to think we touched on all the headlines for all of you listeners. We also, of course, discussed some pro results for players with college ties that were notable from the past week. So if you're looking for additional content, the Great Shot Podcast is the place for you. We'll have a couple of cracked interviews coming out later this week as well. So for all of your tennis content needs, we got you covered here at Cracked Rack. It's like, rate, subscribe, review to this podcast, The Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews Podcast. It's all very much appreciated. Immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or I suppose X, Instagram, Facebook, at Cracked Rackets. You want to follow me directly, I'm at A.L. Gruskin on X, of course. A shout out as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point, Tennis-Point.com. Promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products at the best prices in the tennis world. Of course, you use that promo code. You get 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, Tennis-Point, symbol not the spelling, Tennis-Point.com. The promo code is CR15. 
All right, let's start with the two finals we saw here on Tuesday already unfold. I want to begin with the Zverev three-set victory because that's the best thing I've seen over the last 24 hours in terms of quality of tennis played. It was a battle for Zverev, who captures his second title of the season, a come-from-behind 6-7-7-6-6-3 victory over the 26-year-old Roman Safiulin. Alex Zverev is back. I don't know how else to say it. He is, in my opinion, one of the five best players in the world right now. I think the list is pretty clear cut. I discussed this with our dear friend Gil Gross on his Monday Match Analysis show yesterday. Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev, Sinner, Zverev. I just think the consistency we've seen from those five players throughout the course of the season, you'll give Zverev those first two months as a grace period as he worked his way back into form. But really, since the start of the serious clay court season, it feels like we've seen Alex Zverev be a consistent top 10 player. He's seventh now in the points race as a result of winning the title this week. And given the fact he has no points to defend the rest of the season, he's currently sitting at number 10 in the world. You feel like his play in the top 10 of the rankings to end the season is certainly guaranteed. I mean, the level in this match was extraordinary. And a credit to 26-year-old Roman Safiulin. I've talked about him, obviously, a lot in the past week, given the success he's had here in Chengdu. And I think I referred to this as the Zhuhai final earlier. I apologize if I did. This was the Chengdu final. Look, Safiulin tested Zverev exactly how you need to push the German. You have to be aggressive. You have to be willing to step into forehands. You have to be willing to test Zverev's forehand and take advantage when he's 6 to 12 feet behind the baseline. Be willing to move forward and despite the foot speed, despite the size, despite the fact that if Zverev gets his racket on a backhand pass, you are certainly fearing that he is going to pass you in any of the possible ways he has at his disposal. You know, Sefulin didn't care about that. Sefulin continued to push forward in this match. And, you know, again, you look for Roman Sefulin, who fought off eight of the 10 break points he faced in this match. He won 72% of his first serve points, 59% of his second serve points against, in my opinion, one of the best returners in all of tennis. The aggression Sefulin played with was notable. And in particular, it was the three-forehand cross-court combination he continued to play with. First one wide, second one back out wider, third one Zverev, who's already pulled outside the alley, you know, sprinting back towards the center to try and cover the down-the-line approach, which was always open for Sefulin, and he certainly took it at times to keep Zverev honest, but he was very consistent in going back to that Zverev forehand, waiting for Zverev to pop something up particularly short on that wing, or turn to the slice at which point Sefulin would pop forward, knock that ball off at the net, and take advantage of the open space presented to him. Sefulin played an excellent game plan. He also uh, deployed an excellent game plan. He also, I thought, anytime Zverev got a little shaky, Anytime Zverev started floating second serves, particularly in that first set breaker, Safulin was on top of them. I think he hit two unreturned, one straight up winner, but I think two unreturned uh, return winners in that first set breaker. Breaker, he ultimately takes 7 2. You know, again, Safulin had lined things up perfectly to capture this match to upset Zverev. And in the second set breaker, 5-4, Zverev serving, up a mini break, plays a fantastic 
first serve, plus one, has Safulin on the full sprint, hits an overhead cross court. Safulin makes a play on it, dips the ball low. Zverev misses the backhand volley in the net for five all. How many times have you seen Alex Zverev make that sort of error on what was almost certainly a, you know, a 99.2% he's going to win this point sort of opportunity? He loses that point. He fumbles the match away. That's not what happened. Zverev lines back up, hits a good first serve, holds for 6-5, and it's Safulin who blinks. And Safulin who throws in one of his rare double faults of the match, seeds the second set breaker to Zverev. Zverev gets an early break in the third, holds the rest of the way, and you could just tell again, I've always said it, there's a degree of physicality Zverev brings to move the way he does at his size with the weapons he also has. And I think, I've said this all week, his forehand has gotten better but more than anything else, Zverev is just a confident volleyer now. His ability to knock off volleys, the 5-4 missed backhand volley in the net excluded, it's added a new dimension to his game. It's allowed him to make things a little bit easier in his service games, and then he can go into push mode when he's trying to get that must-have break and trying to grind his way out of trouble. Again, first two sets of this match took over two hours. It was extraordinarily physical. Safulin had the discipline. He had the patience. He was certainly a little backhand shy, did not want to get into those exchanges with Zverev. I think he should have explored them more because I think his backhand would have held up fine. That said, given the success he was having going behind Zverev and continuing to attack that forehand, Safulin played an excellent match. He played a top 25 level of hardcourt tennis. As I alluded to, though, to start this rant, Alex Zverev is one of the five best players in the world. And you look for Zverev now again, second title for him overall on the season. He's now 46-21, and 21, winning 69% of his matches. Of course, keep in mind, he lost six of his first nine matches on the season. So since then, he's 43-12. and 43-12 since losing that match to Andy Murray in Doha. Sounds like a top five player to me. And again, seventh now in the points race. He's one of five guys who ranks top 15 in both hold and break percentage. It's exactly who you think it'd be. Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev, Sinner, now Zverev back in that mix. The numbers say it. The eye test says it. Again, second title for him. He's back inside the top 10 of the rankings where when he's healthy, he has certainly proven he belongs. Uh, Alex Zverev capturing the title in Chengdu. Again, for Safulin, first title, uh, excuse me, first final of his career. He's up to a new career high, 41 as such. You look uh, for Safulin to get wins over top 30 guys in Musetti, in Evans, to be right there with Zverev. He didn't have a match point, but I think it was five all deuce at one point in that second set. He was right there with Zverev. It was five all in the second set breaker. Uh, again, an unfortunate double fault seeding the set to Zverev, but he blinked twice. He was broken also twice in this match. Like He had the level. It was an excellent performance in what was an excellent week for Safulin, who was very kind in the post-match press conference, thanking his wife for making the journey there, the long trip. And he just, he was so positive about the entire experience. And again, this is a former top junior in the world who dealt with a ton of injury experience, uh, a t- ton of different injuries, excuse me, early in his career. Saw his peers, Medvedev, Rublev, Hachinov, all fly up the rankings. And now Sefulin's right up back, uh, right up there with him where he belongs. You know, again, we saw the Wimbledon quarterfinal from him in the summer, doesn't have a ton of points to defend through the first few months of the season. He won a challenger title, but outside of that, 
qualified in Miami, didn't win a main draw match, wins one match at the Phoenix 175K, wins a match in Adelaide after qualifying there to start the season. He's getting into anything he wants the first three months of the year. And I think he's proven to be one of the 25 best hardcore players in the world. I think we saw that level from him certainly at the U.S. Open and losing in five sets to Tommy Paul, even if the rest of his North American hardcore summer was a little bit tough. You know, again, you look for Safulin in the past, some of the successes he has had on hard courts. Semifinals last year in Tel Aviv, losing to Djokovic in what was a really fun match. And I think he won the challenger title in Chicago last summer. He did indeed, beating Ben Shelton, who's obviously proven himself to be one of the 50 best hard court players in the world. I'm just, I'm buying stock in Safulin, 26 years old, as he enters the prime of his career. I think he's going to hold in the top 50 next season and put together just a consistent year of results. Certainly has runway again those first three months to make a push up the rankings. Uh, obviously has a Tel Aviv semifinal still defend, to defend in the back half of this season, but has already made up for that by making a final here in Chengdu. A great week for Safulin. Still, it's Zverev who captures the title. And again, second title of the year for Alex Zverev. You look at him overall now at the ATP level in terms of finals he has captured. And I'm trying my best to filter out some of the Davis Cup or ATP Cup results that sometimes leak in to Tennis Abstract, which shout out to best in the business as always. Zverev now 21 titles in his career. 21 and 11, 32 finals. He's what? 26 years old. 50 titles is an elite group. You know, and there's a runway for Zverev to get there again. Healthy once again, two titles now, both of them since the end of July. He's a top 10 player once again. He showed that this week uh in his run to the title in Chengdu. Obviously, the other title I wanted to discuss uh, here to start today's show came in, uh, excuse me, in, yeah, Zhuhai. See, I'm screwing them up in my head already. It happened in Zhuhai. It was Virov, of course, who was in Chengdu. It was Karen Hatchinov who finally, 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 for the first time since winning the Paris Masters at the end of 2018, returns to the winner's cycle. Hatchinov, 7-6-6-1. He knocks out Yoshihito Nishioka. Now, look... The ATP stats say Hatchinov hit 37 winners against seven unforced errors. Nishioka, 14 winners against seven unforced errors. The winner counts aren't inaccurate. They're a little inflated. The unforced errors counts are entirely deflated. That's not correct, in my opinion, at all. And the reason I say that's not correct at all is because the first set was extraordinarily physical between these two. And, you know, if you want to count those as forced errors, I suppose— that's fair, but, you know, again, it was a credit to Karen Hatchinov. He had the biggest weapons in this match. Couldn't match Nishioka's physicality. Nishioka was afraid of hitting into the Hatchinov forehand wing. And at first I was watching the match and it was puzzling to me. Why wouldn't Nishioka try to attack that wing, particularly force Hatchinov to hit that shot on the run? The reason he didn't force him to do so is because Nishioka's ball, lefty, heavy topspin, it just sat up right on the shoulder of Karen Hatchinov, which allowed him to just 
bunt down on that forehand, drive through it so well. You saw him rip a couple of just extraordinarily impressive on-the-run forehand winners, one of them to hold after being under pressure for five all in that first set, a couple of others to separate himself early in that second set. Now, Nishioka had played a really physical week of tennis, and you could tell he just ran out of legs in that second set. Nishioka, who in reaching this final he has a sole title points to defend next week. Obviously, you get to a 250 final here this week. You've at least somewhat have things off or put yourself in a position to not fall too dip too far in the rankings for Nishioka, who coming into the week had lost seven of his last eight matches, one win in Cincinnati, but other than that, got blanked in the North American hardcourt summer. Needed this sort of run. And to get wins over Karatsev, Struff, the big man in Lloyd Harris, which again, given his size, that presents a particular problem to Nishioka. Gets through that match six and six, didn't face a break point in it. Yoshi played well. I thought he was going after his ground strokes in the opening set here against Hatchinov because he had to. Because again, if he didn't, that topspin would just sit up in Hatchinov's strike zone. There had to be an added depth component to every ground stroke as well. And it was there for the duration of the first set. His discipline in attacking the Hatchinov backhand and only getting Hatchinov stretched on the forehand when the when the lane was just too wide open to deny mixed in drop shots, mixed in short angles, moved in comfortably whenever Hatchinov would float a backhand when stretched. I mean, again, the discipline of Karen Hatchinov is the winning story, and we'll get to that in a second. But I thought Yoshi played really good ball. Don't let the seven six six one scoreline through uh, fool you. It was all about that first set. And once Hatchinov took it again, his ability to pull away from there, what a moment for Karen Hatchinov, who, as I alluded to yesterday, it's not just that he hadn't won a title since October of 2018 or November, I guess, is when that Paris Masters finished. It's that he'd only made one tour-level final in the time between Paris and Zhuhai here this week. He made an Adelaide 1 final at the start of January last year. Now, of course, he also made the finals of the Olympics, and that certainly matters. But, you know, again, for Hatchinov, who coming out of that 2018 season, ultimately cracks the top 10, reaches number 8 in the world the next year because of all the points he accumulated in 2018. He wins three titles in that season. He's 22 years old coming out of it. You felt like, okay, this is a guy who can should certainly be flirting with 8, 9, maybe 10 titles in his career. Certainly was going to get to double-digit finals, right, at the tour level. He hasn't gotten to tour uh, double digits yet in tour level finals. You look for him in his career in ATP tour semifinals, seven and 13 overall in that time span. Obviously now in finals, he moves to uh, two and five overall in the final round of events. It says he's, excuse me, two and five, five and two overall in the final round of events. But, you know, again, seven finals is too light. 20 semifinals even feels a little bit low for a guy who, when you look at where some of those semifinals have come, two different times, obviously, at Grand Slam events, a guy who's made five different quarterfinals at the majors and made at least one quarterfinal in four of the last five seasons, just needed to get that streak over with. And I think it's indicative of the fact that we have seen Karen Hatchinov play his best tennis and right the ship here in this 2023 season. Obviously, he ends last year so strongly in New York, reaching semifinals of the U.S. Open to you know have that result and 
build off of it immediately this year. Semifinals of Australia. He makes quarterfinals at Roland Garros, a semifinal in Miami, quarterfinal at Madrid, Masters events in between. It just felt like we saw a degree of consistency we hadn't seen from Hatchinoff since he was, you know, back in 2018, 22 years old. And yes, he missed everything between Roland Garros and the U.S. Open with injury, but 27 and 12 overall in the year. He's won 69% of his matches despite missing Wimbledon, Cincinnati, Canada. You look for Hatchinov right now, currently sitting at 14 in the rankings. You look for him 14th in the points race as well. And he missed three of the biggest events on the calendar. It speaks to how consistent he has been everywhere else. It's the first time in a long time you ask yourself, you know, where's the bad loss for Karen Hatchinov this season? Medvedev week one. Draper week two, I don't view that as a bad loss. Loses to Tsitsipas in the Australian Open semifinals. All right, loses first round to, in Dubai to Botic. Who cares? Davidovich, Fokina, and three in Indian Wells. Fine. Medvedev, three sets Miami. Good loss. Rublev in Monte Carlo. He, Rublev wins the event. I won't go through all of them, but like, there's a Gregoire Barrere loss in May in Rome that came after he reached quarterfinals in Madrid, the event prior, so I'm writing that one off. Again, a Botic loss in Dubai, whatever. The Michael Moe loss, U.S. Open, I don't count, given how long the injury layoff was. Two bad losses in 52 weeks means you're one of the 20, 15 best players in the world. And I think in the case of Hatchinov, had he played a full season, he would have been in the top 10 race this year. Bodes well for him again. Hatchinov now a sneaky 27 years old. He's still in his prime, smack dab in the middle of it. But, you know, again, he's not the young rising Russian now. No, now he's fighting for, okay, these are the prime years. What can I milk out of them? We've seen him in slam semifinals. We've seen him in slam quarterfinals. Now we see him back in the winner's circle. A big win for Hatchinov to right the ship post-injury. Again, he takes the title in Zhuhai. Uh, obviously, we talked about it yesterday, but your reminder, Korda Karatsev, the semifinalist there. That said, that's your recap of everything in the books from the past 24 hours, or at least events that have now concluded. Let's move on to what we've got in store for all of you this week. And again, I want to rapid fire through the draws, rapid fire through some predictions for all of you, help set the scene. What should you be watching? Yes, the hours will be funky, but what you should you be looking for replays of? Let's start with the ATP action in Beijing. Obviously, you've got 500 level event there. That brings out the stars. And for the first time, we're going to get to see a Carlos Alcaraz play in China. We're going to get to see, you know, a Yannick Sinner play in China, Holger Runa play in China. And yeah, there's absolutely a broader discussion to be had. The tour returning to China, still so much uncertainty surrounding Peng Shui. She hasn't had a media event where she's been able to speak with outlets that aren't Chinese state-controlled media uh, since making her allegations of abuse from her time with her coach. That's obviously remains a tremendous concern for, and I think on the minds of anyone like myself who does this job professionally, I think on the minds of tennis fans who take the time to invest personally in the sport, the tour was inevitable. Look, China had invested so much money in the WTA tour. They had started to build out events for the ATP as well. And, you know, certainly it's great to have tennis in 
Japan. It's great to have tennis in in all surrounding. I think we've got it in what Kazakhstan this week in Astana as well. It's the return to China that's obviously most notable. I believe we've got the WTA event in Ningbo there this week as well. It's a serious discussion to be had because, look, ultimately there has to be a market for tennis to exist. There, They have to go where there are sponsors, where there's money willing to put up the capital required to put on an event such as the caliber of the 500-level action in Beijing this week or whatever it may be moving forward. Obviously, it becomes particularly pertinent when you start to think about the fact and obviously the WTA changing the location of the WTA finals given the justifiable outrage of the initial announcement they were going to head to Saudi Arabia given so many concerns and the human rights violations committed by the Saudi Arabian government. The ATP returning to Beijing in particular, no seem to hold, and obviously they have played plenty of events. Uh, I think they've got the next gen finals coming up in Saudi Arabia this year, if not this year, certainly in the future, as has been discussed. Who am I to prescribe what morals you all should abide by in? how we endorse these events and what you are or aren't comfortable with. Again, if you feel particularly strongly about this topic and you think it's something we should explore further, I would be happy to do so. Message us at Cracked Rackets at A.L. Gruskin. You know where to find us. Our job here at Cracked Rackets, my job on this podcast, at least in particular on a show like this, is to tell you about the results. Where are they playing? What are they doing this week? The action's in Beijing. There is action in Ningbo. Obviously, with so many of the top players in the world participating, I will be locked into it. I will be following it. I will be watching it. Do I think that's a tacit endorsement on my part of the Chinese government? No, I do not, and and their actions, but... If this is where the event's going to be played, we have to cover it. Whether the event should be played there or not, it's a broader discussion about the economics of the tour that, again, I'm happy to have on this portion of the calendar. I, I'd have to find the right guest to do so, but I'm happy to explore that. It's just worth mentioning as we head into this portion of the calendar. Obviously, when I say the tour makes its return to Asia, to China specifically, there's a reason why they have not been there over the past few seasons, and it was worth reminding all of you listeners of that reasoning. Nevertheless, again, looking at the action in Beijing this week, Carlos Alcaraz, your top seed, and I mean, so many of the top players in the world who are all trying to not only shore up their positions for the tour finals, but this was one of the broader discussions I had with Gil Gross. What matters as we look down the home stretch of this 2023 season? Who's the sixth best player in the world? I mentioned earlier, I think the top five right now are pretty clear. Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev, Sinner, Zverev. Who's six? Is it a guy like Andre Rublev, who's won a Masters event, made a bunch of quarterfinals at the majors this year? He's been extraordinarily consistent do you like that consistency versus the ceiling of a Tsitsipas who's in action this week, who we've seen make a slam final this year, the ceiling of a Holger Runa who is so good through the first half of this? Everything pre-Wimbledon has obviously struggled of late with both injuries and form, but, you know, again, continues to, I think, be one of, uh, has to belong in that discussion. A guy like Kasper Ruud obviously has made a slam final here this year. He's the number three seed. How healthy is he? How fit is he? That's a fascinating discussion. Those are just 
the top seeds alone, who are all in action this weekend. Again, that doesn't include Alcaraz, Sinner, Medvedev, who we know belong in that discussion. What's fascinating, of course, as well, is everything else you have in the draw. Who are the unseeded players? Hashinov coming off of a title last week. Unseeded will face Lorenzo Musetti, top 30 player in the world, round one of a 500-level event. Musetti, of course, a real solid week, making the semifinals uh, ultimately before getting knocked out. Where was he? He didn't get knocked out by Nishioka, did he? He didn't get knocked out by Hatchnoff. He got knocked off by Safulin. Safulin knocked him out in the semifinals in Chengdu. Anyways, top 30 battle, round one. Come on now. You know we're in. Jan Leonard Struve, who prior to getting injured, certainly looked like one of the 20 best players in the world. His weapons on what Gil has done research, and I trust his words, says are quicker surfaces. His weapons against a Kasparud who has struggled on quicker surfaces. That's a fascinating round one matchup. How about this? Two guys who have a ton of points to defend. Don't forget, Felix last year won, what, three straight titles plus a semifinal in Paris. He's got Holger Runa, that Paris Masters title winner, round number one of this event. Felix looked good in a Labor Cup victory over Montfie. Two players who certainly you're watching down the home stretch to see how their form uh, to see their form and what they can do. Felix is in serious trouble. He's going to drop out the rankings, you know, down the rankings if he can't defend his points. He might be out of the top 20 to end this year, which he is one of the 20 best players in the world when he's in form. That's a fascinating round one matchup. And I mean, I could do them all. Like again, Mackey looked really good, knocked down quarterfinals, three sets by Hatchinov last week. The only guy to get a set off of Hatchinov last week. He's got a semifinalist from last week in Grigor Dimitrov. That's a round one match. Jerry Shang, Nishioka in. Dan Evans, Yannick Sinner in. Zvira versus Schwartzman out, but Yari versus Tsitsipas. How does Tsitsipas handle those weapons of Nicolas Yari in? Rublev versus Nori is a first-round match. Demonauer Murray, a first-round match, and maybe the best of them all. Tommy Paul, top 20 player in the world, top 15 player in the world. He's got Medvedev round one. This draw is awesome. Uh, Again, this is the event of the week, just given the density, top 50, top 20 players in action. Again, who are the only top 20 players not in action? No Djokovic, no Fritz, no Tiafo. No Hercots, no Shelton. So we've got 15 of the top 20. 15 of the top 20. In. In. Sign me up. Again, Murray Demonauer is a round one match. Paul Medvedev, round one match. Nori Rublev, round one match. Runa FAA, round one match. Hatchinoff Musetti, round one match. Of course, right now, according to Tennis Abstract, your favorite, Carlos Alcaraz, 38.4%. Medvedev, 17.9%. Sinner, 14.1%. After that, a pretty significant drop off to 6% for Stefano Tsitsipas. But who's going to make a move? Who wants to again? Uh, if it's a Alcaraz, by the way, the draw would allow, because Alcaraz has ruined his quarter, it's Runa Sinner, it's Zverev Tsitsipas, it's Rublev Medvedev. There's a world where it's Alcaraz versus Sinner, Zvira versus Medvedev in the semifinals. And what does that tell you? That my top five theory would play out. I think that's also on in the cards this week. But if someone can disrupt that, they have my attention. And so, again, I'm locked into this event. It's hilarious. You have top 50 guys, J.J. Wolf, Alex Vukic, still in qualifying. It would be fascinating to see a Wolf-Elkaraz round one match. That's just a lot of firepower on one court. Vukic as well, by the way, or Harris or Hoffman. I'm just – I like all the matchups. 
I like the draw in Beijing. I think that's the number one event to monitor this week if you're a tennis fan. But look, there's a really good tennis happening in Tokyo as well. And she may not be the world number one anymore, but certainly in the conversation always for best player in the world is Iga Sviantek, who returns to the court this week in Tokyo. And by the way, should she win the title this week, for those of you curious, she could not overtake Sabalenka for number one in the world still. You got some big dogs competing in Tokyo. I believe you have five top 10 players in action this week. Yeah, five top 10. Four of them are in Tokyo. You've got world number two, Iga Sviantek. You've got Jessica Pagula, uh, currently sitting uh, world number four, currently the number two seed this week in Tokyo. You've got uh, last week's champion, Maria Sakari, of course, uh, flying straight from Guadalajara to compete in this Tokyo event. She got a round one bye, of course, so a little bit of time to acclimate to the environment. Her first-round matchup will be Masaki Doi. But again, everywhere you look, and we've already had some first-round matchups in the books, I would say the most notable of the bunch, Daria Kasakina from a set down, I believe a set and a breakdown, 3-6, 6-4, 6-3. She knocked out Marta Kostyuk in what was just a physical match. Extraordinary tennis Watching Kostyuk have to negotiate all, uh, just have to employ so many different types of playing styles, and to see her have success doing a couple of different things, and yet Kasakina just had her in the torture chamber, side to side to side to side. It eventually wore Kostyuk out. There were nine breaks in that 10-game second set, the only hold coming from Kasakina. That was the most impressive result I've seen thus far in Tokyo, but Good win for Samsonova over Tatiana Maria. Good win for Kalinina over the informed American Ashlyn Kruger. Good win for Alexandrova. Three sets over Kalinskaya. And I suppose Pavlochenkova one and one over Vekic. That certainly mattered as well. But look, he got good matchups. I think Iga's going to cruise through Maihan Tama. I think Pagula's going to cruise through Buxa. But outside of that, Naskova versus Pavlochenkova. I think Naskova will be a top 25 player. It's not if, it's when. She could make a quarterfinal at this 500-level event. Alexandrova versus Samsonova. You like power tennis. That's going to be a fun one for you. I think the next round is when things start to get particularly spicy. There's a world where Sviantek versus Kudermatova, Samsonova versus Noskova, Garcia-Sakari rematch of last week, Kasakina versus Pagula. Now, again, that's a lot of seeds holding place, and we know that very rarely happens in at any event in the tennis world. If that's the case in Tokyo, does this surpass Beijing as the event to watch? It certainly levels things even because I'm in on all of those matchups. And certainly for Maria Sakari, should she have a good week this week? So should she, let's just say, goes on to somehow win the title, back-to-back titles for Maria Sakari? What, what a story that would be. If Jabur loses early at her event in Ningbo, and we'll get to her in a moment, there's a world where Sakari passes Jabur this week for that eighth spot in the points race. And that number eight spot's really the last one up for grabs. Sakari right now about 300 points behind Jabur. Madison Keys 300 points behind Sakari. Hard to see Keys overcoming a 600-point gap, particularly given she's not playing in Tokyo this week. But... I suppose that race for number eight is something to watch for in Tokyo on top of, let's just see, 
world number one Ika. I feel like she's going to cruise to the title this week. This feels like a big Ika week, 52.1% favorite uh, right now, according to the Tennis Abstract singles forecast. Pagula, 19.9. After that, they're like, look, it's going to be one of those two. And anytime we get the prospect of an Ika-Pagula matchup, you sign up for it. That's been a sneaky, fun rivalry between the two, given, again, Pagula has had at least a little success against Sviantec this season, beating her at, at what's it, what was it called? It used to be called the ATP Cup. I forget what it's called now uh, to start the year. It's not called the ATP Cup. It's called the World Cup. It's called United Cup. I knew it was a cup. Uh, beats her at United Cup. Obviously beat her in Montreal as well on her way to the title, so... I know not as long of a breakdown there on Tokyo as we did on Beijing, but give it a round. I just think all the seeds are heavy favorites in their round of 16 matchup. Obviously, that Noskova, Pavlochenkova one, maybe you have a little bit more of a question about, but I do think the seeds are going to get to the quarterfinals, and we'll start then with Tokyo tomorrow and break down some of those matches, what to watch for tactically, because again... That's the sort of tennis, those are the sorts of matchups you stay awake for, regardless of what hour they're happening at, wherever you live. That's what's going on in Tokyo. Your undercard events are pretty fun this week as well. We'll stay on the women's side, go to that event in Ningbo. Um, you look top seed on Shabur, 28.6% chance of winning the event. She's not the favorite, it's Kavitova at 47.7%. And look, those are the two most notable. I suppose, names in the draw, the two top 20 players. But you have a Serana Kersea in hot pursuit of a career high. Kersea right now sitting at 25 in the world. That's four off her career high rankings. You look for her in the points race right now. She's currently 26th. Uh, so again, that points race, a barometer of how many points you've accumulated in the year. She's not 21. She finishes the year 21st in points accumulated. She'll finish the year 21 and match that career high. She is in pursuit of doing that. Got a very impressive three-set win over Claire Lou in round number one. That, to me, was the most notable result uh, we saw in those opening round matches. But, of course, Jabir did get tested 6-5 and five over Diane Perry, the former world number two junior. I just love her firepower. I love the springiness, her ability to go after the forehand, play the backhand slice, get in behind it as well. And yet Jabir was able to hit through it. I thought Jabir moved particularly well also. You know, again, four on Jabir, looking to regain some form, some rhythm. She'd love to get back in the winner's circle here to end this season. She's got a few points to defend uh, down the home stretch of the year. But again, Jabur, a first-round winner after getting uh, tested 6-5 and five over Perry. The upsets of round number one, Zivana Reva, three sets over Bolter. Uh, Savink, 5-5 th- uh, five and five over Garacheva. And then Rakimova, 6-3 in the third over Aranksa Rus. You also had last week's champion, uh, Wang Shiyu, knocked out by Nadia Podoroska. But we'll call that a schedule loss, given again Wang Shiyu coming off of a title run last week. Good to see Clara Tawson back in the winner's circle, forced to retire from her match last week. She gets a first-round win over the always tricky Alina Avanissian in round number one. I would say those are the highlights of what's happened thus far. Our girl, Daishnai, also getting a win to advance to round number two. The former NC State All-American Diana Schneider continuing to consolidate her spot, one of five teenagers right now in the top 100 of the WTA singles rankings. 
I guess shout out to Linda Fruvertova as well. Snapped an extended losing streak with her uh, three-set victory over Rebecca Masarova. So worth noting. And again, Tossin versus Ivanareva. That's a fun round two matchup. Fruvertova Blinkova in Rakimova Schneider. Ian on that as well. We'll keep our eye on this again. Kvitova the favorite, then Jabur, then Kirstea, then a massive drop-off before you get to any other candidate. That's your action, uh, your undercard, I should say, WTA event, your undercard ATP event happening in Astana. It's funny. We all know if you watch that Astana event over the years, how slow those courts are. And I, I think it was last season, maybe two years ago, we got the Medvedev Djokovic Astana battle, Tsitsipas going on a run in Astana as well. How physical those matches were. It's a very fun court, in my opinion, to see this tennis get uh, played. It feels like it's the perfect conditions for a guy like Sebi Korda, a slow, high-bouncing hard court where he'll have time and he'll be the one guy who still has the power to hit through this court. Sebi Baez, you give him slow, high-bouncing anything, his forehand's going to be a missile and he'll have that much more time to get into his playbook. Yet it's a fun undercard. You got a bunch of top 50 guys in play. Greek Spur, Baez, your top two seed. You then have Bublik on home soil, Lachetschka, Korda, Manorino, Jera, and Stan the Man Wawrinka rounding out your seeds. But plenty of other top 100 players in action. Dominic Teams got a first round battle against my birthday brother, Juan Pablo Varias. Slow indoor hardcore. I guess kind of close to the clay encounters they've had early in their career. 1-1 is the career head-to-head between those two. Stan's got a tough first round match. He'll take on the American veteran, Marcos Giron. Giron, the strength to handle that stand pace. Still, Stan is Stan. On a slow, high-bouncing indoor hardcore, that is trouble. Popperin Corda first round match very fun. Popperin reaching the top fifty of the uh, of the world for the first time earlier this season. Corda coming off of a semifinal last week, looking to just find any sort of rhythm to end his year. And then you just again the relentless consistency of Man Manorino on this surface. Feel like it might not be for him, but he's playing so well right now that you just never know. So again. Fun names across the draw right now, according to Tennis Abstract. Lachetschka, the favorite, 20.5%. Greek Spore, second at 135 Baez at 9%. Wawrinka, 8-4. Stan, uh, excuse me, Korda, 7-4. Yeah, Lachetschka is the favorite, but they're saying it's anyone's ballgame in Astana. And I think that speaks to, again, the depth in that draw, the quantity of not just top 100 players, but ton of top 75, uh, you know, top... 60 players in this undercard event as well. So, look, we're ready to play down the home stretch of the season. Slams might be done. Calder might be turning to October here quickly, but we're still going to have tour tennis to cover for all of you tennis fans. And that is what we, of course, will strive to do each and every day here on this show. Of course, a shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the <laughs> of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A massive shout out as well to the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point. You all know the deal. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With all of that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. And we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>